gospel and sermon text this morning comes to us from the good news according to Luke, the sixth chapter. And Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. May God now add his blessing to the preaching of his word as well as to the reading. So here we are, this time of year now, for the last couple of years is, is uh, triggering for me because it's about the time that we started hearing news um, of a new pandemic situation possibly coming into being. And so it's hard, uh, this part of winter, especially the last couple of years. Here we are entering into what is the third year, really, of a pandemic, uh, the beginning of a third year. And what some people are starting to call uh, a sort of second pandemic is, is becoming more and more aware of people. And that is not just the physical or health ramifications of a pandemic, uh, but all of the other ramifications that have come from all of the sacrifices and loss and sorrow that people uh, have experienced and lived through. All around the country, there's this sort of, I guess, epidemic or pandemic of counselors and social workers, psychologists and therapists, frontline workers, and they're trying to deal with these new ramifications. And that is namely a mental health crisis. Mental health, emotional health, all these other ways of, uh, that are aspects of our well-being. There are more demands than ever uh, for new patients and children and adults and those who are looking for counseling. People are coming in for anxiety and depression, financial stress, substance abuse, anger management, worries about their job, distress over our country's political polarization, conflict at home and at work. One clinical psychologist in Burbank, California says this, there is so much grief and loss. One of my clients who is usually patient is experiencing road rage. Second. Um, another client who is a mom of two teens is fearful and doesn't want them to leave the house. My highly work-motivated client is considering leaving her career. There's just an overwhelming sense of malaise and fatigue everywhere. Do any of you resonate with this? You do, right? This great challenge to well-being, or to use a more colloquial term that's really close uh, to at least Americans' heart and history, and that is happiness. That we all want to be happy. 
And in ordinary times, we're driven by our pursuit of happiness. In fact, we're always driven by our pursuit of happiness, but it's right there in our founding documents that this is one of our inalienable inalienable rights to be able to pursue happiness. And one of the things we've learned the most is just how frail our hold on happiness is, just how tenuous, that we can't control, we can't secure happiness, we can't protect it in as much as we try to give ourselves over to the things we think make us happy and we keep, keep chasing after them, they ultimately begin to have power over us and enslave us. And we can't find ourselves experiencing anything but sorrow at the loss of our happiness. And into this context, it's fair to ask, especially at a season like this, when so many of us have been forced to experience life as those who suffer regularly, those who are without, those who have lost relationships, those who are poor, those who don't have enough to eat. We've in some ways tasted of these things. And so the question that is always on the mind of those who are suffering, who can't find or control or secure their own happiness is really at the end of the day, does God even want me to be happy? Does God want me to be blessed? And you probably know that this word in the scriptures, blessed and happy, is translated, it's one word, but it's translated in either way. And I think in English, you kind of just need both because we have this idea of blessing. Something comes from outside of us and it's a gift, but also happiness, the sense of being whatever that is, joyful, right, that things are good. It, that idea is in the word, both of them. So to be blessed, to be happy, this is a large part of what Jesus' message was for people. Now, Jesus was an itinerant preacher, so you may have heard some of these before called the Beatitudes, the blessings, and in his famous Sermon on the Mount. Well, in this one, we call it the Sermon on the Plain. He comes down, and he goes into a plain and teaches people. And just remember, he's an itinerant preacher, so he would go around, and he would have a lot of his same themes and same subjects and find different ways to riff on them, or maybe a new illustration over here, or just a different way to turn the phrase. And so it seems that he was often talking about what makes for a happy life, a blessed life life. And the first thing you should hear, we're going to look into that, but is that Jesus went around telling people that God wants them to be blessed. He wants them to be happy. Despite all the ways they've messed up or the things that they're ashamed of, that they've thought or done, he still wants to bless human beings like you and me. That this is his fundamental posture and work is to bring blessedness and happiness to people. He uses the word five times just on this, in this short sermon. Recorded for us here by Luke. He says, oh, how, how happy you will be when these things happen, happen. I want us to see three things. We'll move through them quickly. But three things this morning about what it means to live into the happiness, the blessedness that Jesus intends for all human beings. And for you and for me this morning. The first thing I want you to see is that true happiness starts with hunger. True happiness starts with hunger. And specifically, hungering for the right things. These verses, Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place, a plain. And there was a great crowd of his followers and also a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem. And the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, they all came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And though there were those who were troubled with unclean spirits. See, happiness starts with hungering 
for the right things. We'll actually delineate this a little bit more in the second point. But you have to have open hands to receive something, right? You have to have a hungry stomach to be filled with something. If you are always filled up with your own work, with your own pleasure, with your own security, with your own self-identity, with all the things you're building in the world, you will never hunger after these things that can actually satisfy. These people were hungering. Tyre and Sidon is hundreds of miles away. They had gone on a journey, a pilgrimage, not an easy one, no doubt, and they were falling around this itinerant preacher through this wilderness situation, and they're hungering. They're coming to him. They came because they were hungering for words of hope. They wanted to hear him teach. Give us some hope, Jesus. Tell us that there's more to this life than just what we see around us. And it says they came to be healed of actual sicknesses in their body. They wanted to be made well and to be made right. And then they also came to have their troubled minds and spirits calmed and cured. Their fear and their anxiety and their sadness. And Jesus, it says, began to cure them and teach them and heal them. He speaks, he heals, he calms. See, we have to hunger for the right things. To come to him longing for something that we can't get from the government. We can't get from our family and our friends. We can't get from our tribe. We can't get from our political party. We can't get from any other identity that we put on ourselves or any other work, anything that we possess, to be like these people. That's why he says, blessed are the poor, right? To be impoverished and say, I will never be satisfied until something bigger than me comes to satisfy me. I'm hungry for something more, as my friend Anthony Bourdain liked to say, right? Hungry for something more than the world can give. And Jesus says, you came to me. He's with them, and he begins to teach them. And he says, here's what true happiness looks like. And it's a strange list, right? Just in this one, there's a, there's a bunch more that he said in his other Sermon on the Mount. But here, blessed are you when you're poor. That's, that's how you get happy. Blessed are you when you're hungry right now. And blessed are you who weep. Blessed are you when people hate you and say all kinds of terrible things about you, right? See, this seems totally backwards. And we think, well, if that's what God means by happiness, no thanks, right? I'll figure it on my own. That seems like backwards. And this is where the challenge is about hungering for the right things. See, we want the blessings of God's shalom and flourishing and peace in his kingdom. But we often don't want the path of getting there. We try to get as far away from suffering our own or someone else's as fast as we can. We don't want to have anything to do with needing a handout. We don't want to not know where our next meal is coming from. We don't want people to say bad things about us, of course. But see, the rub here is that in the world, people are avoiding those things, and so they're securing it for themselves. And the more that one person hoards or builds up or takes, it causes more suffering for other people. And so, paradoxically, the gospel is about reversing the natural course of the world in its brokenness, in its fallenness, in its life apart from God, where people are trying to get their own possessions and their own reputations and their own food and their own all of these things. And it's just causing more suffering, more poverty for others, more hunger for others. And so the gospel comes as this great reversal to say that the last are going to become first. The low are going to be lifted up and exalted. Love and peace and joy is going to come actually through the path 
of following Jesus, which is often the path of solidarity and compassion and suffering and grief, of being with the outcast and the marginalized and those who don't belong. It's an upside-down, backwards, inside-out kingdom. Jesus is not saying there's anything fundamentally wrong with wealth or being full in your stomach or having joy or wishing for the approval of your friend or spouse or neighbor. What he is saying is that if these are the things you are most clearly hungering for, they will never satisfy you and you won't find happiness. Wealth, material satisfaction, comfort, the approval of others. If these are things you must have in order to be happy, they will always let you down. You will never actually be filled. But if they are just things that come and go in life as you follow Jesus, and you hunger and thirst most for him, he says you will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger, for they will be filled. He says in the Gospel of Matthew, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. That was everything being made right. God's presence that fixes everything. If that's what you most hunger after, you will be filled. And that's the second point. Happiness starts with hungering for the right things. And true happiness flows from being in his healing presence. So hungering for the right things, I could put it this way, is to actually hunger for Jesus more than for anything else. For his presence, for the identity that he gives you, for his power, and for his healing presence. It says in verse 19 that all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and it healed them all. Because they'd hungered and they came to him, this powerful healing life of God, this spirit came out from him, and healed all of them. This powerful new experience of God's healing life. The gospel is telling us here that Christ is the satisfaction to our hunger. He is all that's right with the world. He is rightness. He is righteousness. He comes to fix and reconcile all things. He comes to be a fully human one of us. Think about this. He comes to live out and to heal all the aspects of our being. We hear all these things about Jesus, that he was, he knew how to party. His first miracle was a wedding at Cana where people were already a little tipsy and he brings out the finest wine. He's known as a wine bibber and a glutton. Those aren't compliments. He's also known as a man of sorrow, much acquainted with grief who had nowhere to lay his head. See, he knows how to identify with all aspects of our life, of our experience as human beings, all the phases that we go through, different parts of the world, different societies. He knows what it means to be human. He's lived all the way into it, and he comes to bring his healing touch to all of our experience as human beings. And if we know that God is there with us when we are high or when we're low, And that we're always hungering for him, that we can trust that he is there to fill us with himself. To satisfy our hunger for him. To bring new life and healing to us. I think there's just two quick ways to think about this. One we talk about here a lot, and it's a little bit more of like using your brain, mental exercise, those sorts of things. Uh, Henry Nouwen's one of the writers I like that helps frame this. And what he talks about is that we have programs for happiness. These things that we use to 
tell us or to pursue happiness in our lives. And they're, they're largely about identity. They're questions like this. Who am I? And we can answer them this way. I am what I do. I am what other people say I am. Or I am what I have. But these are the ways we seek often to satisfy our hunger. But if we were to come to Jesus and experience his power and his healing, it is to turn away from this and say, I am not what I do. I am not what other people say I am. I am not what I have. True happiness for me, true blessedness for me, and Jesus spoke to each one of these, is that I am what God says I am. I am what God says about me. I am what God does for me. I am what I possess in Jesus. This is the who am I question. So that on any given day or any given part of the day, you can say, I'm poor. Or today I feel wealthy. I'm hungry, I'm weeping, I'm rejected, I'm ridiculed, or I'm content with myself. I'm laughing about this lucky success that I'm having right now. Whatever you're experiencing, to go to Jesus and to hunger for his word over you, as we saw in baptism, his declaration of your identity, his telling you that you are not what you do or what other people say about you or what you have, but instead you are in Christ. And you always have him no matter what you're experiencing And the second word about this, about experiencing this healing presence, I don't want to go into this much, but you might be able to ask how. I think you're here. You're doing it. You're in worship. You get to experience this more fully. Those of you who have tuned in online, you get to experience it a little bit. Anytime you go into a community, into a church, to experience this proclamation and the fellowship and the power of the Spirit through word and through sacraments like baptism and the Lord's Supper, you're experiencing God. He's saying, that's where I show up. This is my new temple, my people, and I am with them. And of course, on your own or in small groups, you can also commune with him through his holy word where he continues to speak to us words of happiness and blessing. We can pray to him and trust that he hears us. As I said, we can get together in communion as a crowd, a small crowd or a larger crowd. We can commune with him. And I also just want to hint at this. Uh, When I was younger, I was converted late in high school, and I had some friends, you know, across the gamut, you know, of sort of like different kinds of Christians. When I got in college, some of my friends got a little bit into what's called the charismatic sort of circles, and some of that was really helpful. There were times where I had powerful experiences of God, like say at a a big worship concert, or when someone showed you love in a really unique way in a group at a camp or whatever. You have these experiences, and one of the things that, that I had a hard time with is I was told to distrust those things. And every once in a while, they felt a little strange. They felt a little like, I'm not sure you can claim that God, that, you know. And I got these teachers that taught me, like, it's more objective to just trust the word uh, and, and to apply it with your mind and your willpower, which is not entirely untrue, right? But one of the things they used to say is, like, how do you know if that feeling you're having isn't just last night's pizza, right? Trust God. One of the things I feel like I've been a little bit robbed of for a couple decades of leaning so heavily into that is that Jesus comes in his personal presence for them to experience his power, transformative experience, and to be healed. And so through these things, what I'm trying to encourage you is don't stand over the word. Don't don't just toss prayers off into the void. When you're in communion, don't just think about the social stuff when you're with other people. Instead, seek the powerful presence of God. That's what the Holy Spirit dwelling in you is. 
to give you real transformative experiences of his presence that heal you in your deepest and most hidden wounds. That might look different from everyone else, but the word charisma actually just goes back to the word gift, the gift of God's presence. And that's what he intends to give you and how he intends to transform you through these more objective means. Happiness flows from experiencing God's healing presence in Jesus. And lastly, happiness, true happiness, in as much as we have it and can share it, and in as much as we want to experience more of it, it also will begin to do what I call holding hands with the world. Okay, so happiness hungers for the right things. Happiness flows from his healing presence. And happiness eventually will hold hands with this broken world. This is what he said a blessed life as he looked up and he said, Blessed are you when you're poor. Yours is the kingdom of God. When you're hungry, you'll be satisfied. When you weep, you will laugh. When people say all kinds of shameful and mean things about you. And then he goes on to the woes. What he is actually doing here, just in brief, is talking about solidarity with the suffering. That we learn how to share Christ's love and life with the most broken things in the world. Woe to us if we're always trying to get away from all of that and just stay rich or stay full or stay laughing and stay in the praise of the world. Instead, he says, no, go out with me. This is where I'm going. This is where I'm doing my work. I am going to those who are hungry to give them my healing presence and to hold their hands and to heal them. And so you come with me. That's where you're going to find your true happiness. Don't turn away. And friends, haven't we gotten a full immersion uh, baptism into sorrow and suffering and death the last couple years? Don't we often want out of it? Yes. He wants us to be blessed, to be happy, to flourish, to have shalom. But note that we're not just trying to turn back the clock and go back to everything as it was. We are supposed to be broken open into people that know how to have compassion now. To suffer with, to come near and to hold the hands of the hurting. To allow Jesus to heal them, sometimes through us or near us. These sermons aren't just about how to be good. It's how to be a countercultural embodiment of true flourishing, of true passion, of true love, of true happiness. And that's what Jesus is saying is that true happiness is to be the beloved, to be loved, to go out into the world and to share the love of God with those who are hungry and in need of healing as we continue to hunger and be in need of healing. If we practice this solidarity, then we are holding hands with the world and we will experience more and more happiness as we see his presence unveiled and his healing happen in lives around us. I close with this story. This writer named Barbara Holmes went to visit some years ago a church called Fellowship Church. This church was started in the 40s by Howard Thurman, uh, a very great thinker, an African-American, if you're unaware of him, also a mystic and a Christian, and he started this church. He's really, he's really well-known and widely read. I commend many of his writings to you. But she went into this church, excited to see what had happened, that Howard Thurman and his wife Sue had began this church. And, you know, in the 40s, 50s, 60s in San Francisco, it was immediately a multi-ethnic, multi-racial church in this urban location with all the turmoil going on in the country. 
And she was amazed to see this community and to see what they were doing. She actually talks about the passing the peace and holding hands, okay? Holding hands with the world, starting with one another in the church. And she said that this older African-American man approached a young Anglo man sitting there, and he wouldn't get up and he wouldn't shake hands with anyone. So the man came to the young man, and he said, young man, peace be with you. You know, shake my hand. And the guy says, no. He says, you won't shake my hand? And she thought, you know, this is okay. This is not good. And he, he just said to him, I can't shake hands because I sweat profusely and I'm really embarrassed to shake your or anyone's hand. So the older African-American gentleman thought that was a little weird and started to walk off and then thought better of it. Turned, came back around, picked that guy up and gave him a big bear hug. Beautiful story. But here's what Howard Thurman says about his church and what motivated it and how it sustained those kinds of countercultural acts in the world. He said of his wife and him, Sue and I knew that all of our accumulated experiences of the past had given us two crucial gifts for this undertaking. One, a profound conviction that meaningful and creative experiences between peoples can be more compelling. I'm going to say that again. Meaningful and creative experiences between peoples can be more compelling than all the ideas, concepts, faiths, fears, ideologies, and prejudices that divide them. Holding hands together, sharing, compassion, more powerful than what divides. And two, an absolute faith that if such experiences can be multiplied and sustained over a time, a time interval of sufficient duration, that any barrier that separates one person from another can be undermined and eliminated. One basic discovery was constantly surfing for us, that meaningful experiences of unity among peoples were more compelling than all that divided and separated. Or as Victor Hugo said, the supreme happiness of life consists in the conviction that one is loved, loved for one's own sake, let us say rather loved in spite of oneself. To be happy is to be loved. May you know the love of Christ today. May you hunger for it. May you be healed by his presence. And may it empower you to hold hands with one another and with the world this week. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.